0: Hello everybody and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting and we interview the author of that book. This week I'm very pleased to say we have Eric Lohr, my old friend and colleague on the show, and we'll be talking about his terrific new book, Russian Citizenship from Empire to Soviet Union. Eric, thanks so much for being on the show. Great to be here. I'm, I'm, I'm very glad you're here as well. We haven't spoken for a long time, and it just pleases me so much to hear your voice. Why don't you begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself? Uh,
1: I am from the north woods of Wisconsin, where the winters are long, so long that one is tempted to read Dostoevsky and Tolstoy uh, uh, for, for many months, and that's what I did at a very young age. It, it got me hooked in this field of Russian history. And I uh, made my first trip there in 1987 as a guy named uh, Mikhail Gorbachev was right. uh, coming to power and doing all kinds of exciting things. Right. Um, and I um, mm-hmm. uh, never looked back. All right. And then you went to school and you went to school again. and then- I Went to school at a place called Harvard where right. I met a guy named Marshall Poe That's and true. many other interesting people yeah. and um, ended up writing uh, a book about the First World War. Uh-huh. And this is my second book.
0: Yeah. And don't forget your jump shot. And I also worked on my jump shots. That's true. You did. And it was good, I have to say. They used to call you Eric the Red. Do you remember that? <laughs> yes. Kenny, you remember Kenny? Yes. Kenny used to call you Eric the Red. This is a little inside baseball for our listeners probably, but you're going to have to suffer that because this podcast is free. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you, why did you, if you were paying for it, you wouldn't have to listen to this. Could you tell us why you wrote Russian citizenship? I, I wrote this book for...
1: Um, uh, let me let me trace the genesis of this book. Okay. It goes back to when I first uh, began to study Russia as an undergraduate. Um, and uh, I went to Estonia. My first trip to the Soviet Union was to Estonia. And then I took a group of students there in my senior year. Uh, and we went to the International Song Festival, which had over a million people um, present uh, in a country that only has... Um, uh 900,000 Estonians. And and then so I saw the power of nationalism firsthand and was was amazed by it. And um, I arrived at graduate school in 1991 just as the Soviet Union was about to collapse. And uh listened to the great scholar Adam Ulam mutter under his breath uh all semester. We didn't know anything about nationalism. I don't understand this. Why is the Soviet Union collapsing? Where did this nationalism come from? And uh then that same year, or that, that later that year, I went to um, the uh, uh, National Association for the Advancement of Slavic Studies Convention, and all of the panels were about uh, uh, popular culture, worker clubs, and what kind of films they watched, and <laughs> <laughs> what they wrote in their spare time, and I had this surreal feeling that the field, the field was not asking the, the questions <laughs> that had contemporary relevance and that were burning questions yeah. they were inherently historical questions. Yeah. So um, from that point onward, I really, um, I really um, uh, focused my intellectual developments and my, um, uh, uh, the questions I was asking on, on this big question of the history of nationality in the, uh, uh, in, in this region uh, the History of the Empire, and my first book dealt with that question during the First World War uh, with a series of uh, uh, problems related to fighting the war uh, as a multi-ethnic empire. Uh, and uh, my second book comes out of my first book.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So in the first book, you talk a lot about population transfer, if I recall correctly. That is sequestration of people, especially Germans. Um, not only Germans, though, during the war as an effort to kind of secure the homeland. Can you talk a little bit about what you found there? Because I, like Adam Ulam, had never heard about any of this. Okay. That well, doesn't speak very well of my my right. excellent teachers. They were excellent, though. I will say that.
1: <laughs> the, the first book was uh, – it's called uh, Nationalizing the Russian Empire, the Campaign Against Enemy Aliens During World War One." And uh, it deals with uh, what happened to the regime as it tried to mobilize to fight World War I. And what it did is basically embrace uh, a virulent form of Russian nationalism that it had, it had held at arm's length for decades, even centuries, prior to 1914. And the argument of the book is that this was extremely disruptive for a multi-ethnic empire. And um, uh, the, um, uh, uh, while writing the book... Um, I looked for, because the, the question of citizenship was was very large in that book, um, because a lot of the policies the, the regime embraced were targeted uh, against the citizens of enemy states. Uh, so while writing the book, I looked for the standard reference work on the history of Russian citizenship, and guess yeah, what? Right, yeah. There was none.
0: Yeah, right, so right.
1: that's why I, I immediately, as I was writing that first book, said, I know what my next project will be. I have to write this book huge. This, this, I have to fill this gaping hole in the literature. There, mm-hmm. there needs to be a standard work on Russian citizenship. Mm-hmm, so,
0: mm-hmm. That was a project. Well, it's, I mean, it's interesting because we in the United States uh, think of citizenship as basically part of our identity. We belong to a political community. That's what makes us uh, citizens. And we have all the rights, uh, uh, privileges, and duties or obligations of citizens. This is something that uh, we're taught in civics class. I think from the very beginning, I can remember this Pledge of Allegiance and all of that. Uh, and, and I think it is inherent in any constitutional polity that there will be some very concrete notion of who's in and who's out. Although there are boundary cases, obviously, in every state because people travel back and forth across the, uh, across the frontier quite a bit. Uh, one of the complications I happen to know in, in the Russian case is that this notion is not what we would call organic to Russian history. There's another notion that is subjecthood, which was. Can you talk about the difference between citizenship and subjecthood in Russian history?
1: Sure. I mean, just technically, subjecthood refers to the institutions of belonging to the czar. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's, it's the, the term that's used to describe uh, that relationship while there was a king. And citizenship is uh, what uh, uh, what emerges after the uh, the czar abdicates in February 1917, mm-hmm. uh, uh, and so that's the technical. But um, there's um, uh, uh, there are a couple of big issues here in terms of how I defined my project and um, and what citizenship is all about in the Russian Empire. Um, Citizenship, in some sense, is what precisely what you pointed to. It's it's the mix of rights and obligations under the law of each individual member of the state, uh, and that is a huge topic, of course, in 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 every country's history. Um, no country has ever had perfectly equal rights and obligations for all of its citizens. Uh, we. Uh, we only passed the Civil Rights Act in, what, 1964. Mm-hmm. Um, we had separate laws for our separate peoples and we still do to this day to a certain degree. The Russian Empire was, of course, um, uh, on the far end of the spectrum in that sense. In fact, the whole empire was principled around uh, the notion that each individual estate group, peasants, nobles, mm-hmm. clergy, etc., each individual group had its own individual legal status, its own mix of rights and obligations under the law that was inherently different, and that was the whole principle uh, of the old regime. Uh, The notion of citizenship as perfectly equal rights and obligations emerged as a challenge to that old regime, and it was embraced by the uh, liberals and the liberal movement and uh, seen as a concept of criticism of the existing status quo. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's a very interesting long story about the rights and obligations, the challenge from the, from the liberals uh, to the old regime model. And I, I touch on that in the book. But what I do in the book is, is very much make that, the, um, uh, as a social scientist would say, a, a dependent, um, uh, an independent variable rather than the dependent variable of the analysis. The dependent variable of the analysis is membership in the state. Uh, and that is simply the set of rules and uh, practices that define who is a member of the state, how someone becomes a member of the state, uh, how one leaves membership in the state, uh, how the border, the physical border of the country, um, uh, is is patrolled, uh, immigration policies, emigration policies, that whole mix of things, and and that is something that. You know, every country has to deal with, every country has its mix of policies dealing with those kind of questions. And uh, one of the basic points of the book is that Russia is much more comparable to other countries when you, when you really just focus on that mix of questions rather than the big, huge question of uh, equal rights and obligations under the law. Mm-hmm you narrow your focus, uh, Russia doesn't look so different from um, other places. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Well, you begin the book in the Muscovite period. I quite like that. Uh, and one of the things that you just pointed out about the Muscovites, this is the pre-Petrine period, but we might include the Petrine period, is in fact that uh, this, this was – they didn't think about these things very much except in terms of uh, their desire to attract foreigners. In other words, for uh, Russians on the ground or people in the empire, this was not a complicated thing. Uh, they were simply subjects of the czar, and they might have had a particular relationship to the czar, and that required some things of them and gave them certain rights, but th- this was more or less done by convention. I don't know any Muscovite law that talks about these things, um, except concerning foreigners. And by when foreigners, I mean, it's interesting in and of itself, because by foreigners, what we really mean here is uh, people from Western Europe. Uh, at least in terms of the Muscovites. Can you talk a little bit about what the, these sort of early Russians wanted to, how the, how this question came up for them? Sure. Um, you know, and this, this kind of goes against, I
1: think, the presumption in the few things that have been written about subject history, uh, that sort of the Muscovite era is this era of uh, xenophobia and isolationism uh, where – basically um, uh, subjecthood was very restrictive and, and hard to acquire and and I, I go I push against that in my first chapter by arguing that actually uh, there was a very strong as you just mentioned a very strong uh, urge of the Czars to attract and uh, servitors and, and attract people with skills to Muscovy um, mm-hmm. and to get them into the Muscovite service and then to hold them in muscovite service so um, I, from that first chapter, develop uh, uh, a sort of catchphrase called attract and hold. Mm-hmm. And I argue throughout the book that this is a, uh, a remarkably persistent um, uh, descriptor of of Russian subjecthood and then later citizenship policies. It's something that, uh, that really is one of the persistent elements throughout. And I guess you've seen a, a, a recent iteration of that when uh, Putin attracted Gerard Depardieu to mm-hmm. Russia and mm-hmm. – I don't know how they're going to try to hold them there.
0: Uh, Right. But I mean, this attract and hold thing, I mean, that's a very mild way of putting it, isn't it? I mean, what they would do is is they would promise them uh, service positions and salaries, and then they would get them into Russia. Uh, Sometimes they would just send them home. I remember they did this in the first part of the 17th century. They just sent a bunch of them home. But oftentimes they would just imprison them. They would just tell them they couldn't leave. Oh yeah, well, and
1: the the most famous case is uh, Patrick Gordon, mm-hmm. uh, who this this great military leader who uh, came to Russia and then wanted to go back home, and and yeah. uh, his family was essentially held hostage, and yeah. he was not allowed to go. Um,
0: yeah, yeah, that's and right. So that, and that wasn't, that wasn't a singular case. There were other. No, victims. there were a lot of cases like that. That's right. It sort of changes a little bit with Peter, who's much more enthusiastic about attracting foreigners. I mean, another thing to say about the Muscovite period, and you do point this out in the book, is that the church didn't like these uh, people, and they wanted them to convert. They wouldn't convert, at least they often wouldn't convert, and uh, there were riots against them. I mean, people were very, I mean, the common people, I guess I would say at least those in Moscow and big cities, were very suspicious of these people. Right. Yeah. So, in, in, Peter, in Peter's time, and then, of course, in Catherine's time, it changes because they make a much more thoroughgoing effort to bring uh, Central and Western Europeans to Muscovy as experts, how does uh, I guess we might call it immigration and naturalization policy? The Muscovites wouldn't have understood that at all. Um, but how does it change under in the in the eighteenth century?
1: In the eighteenth century, uh, there's a notion that the strength of us of a country is related to the size of its population, mm-hmm. and um, that uh, becomes all the more relevant once Russia fights a series of wars with the Ottoman Empire, culminating in 1774. Uh, with the uh, acquisition of the vast Black Earth steppe uh, region, which um, is, is a tremendous moment in Russian history because it opens up, for the first time, really productive uh, farmland for settlement. Uh, but the problem is uh, there are nomadic um, uh, groups uh, in that region, and to really secure that, region um, uh, you need people uh, who are tilling the soil and, and so Catherine uh, pursues a policy of uh, sending invitations to various groups throughout Europe to come and settle in this step and gives them all kinds of exemptions from the basic obligations talk about the mix of rights and obligations under the law that she essentially gives uh, exemptions from military service, from taxes um, gives free land to um, uh, gives, gives total um, uh, religious freedom uh, russia uh somewhat counterintuitively becomes a, a destination for uh the escape from um, a religious persecution for many groups mm-hmm. and mennonites and uh and protestant sect groups uh that uh, settle in the southern uh ukrainian steppe and uh in the region mm-hmm. um, and so that's a, kind of the culmination of the attract and hold policies in the late late eighteenth century. Uh, And it becomes um, a a factor that continues in different ways into the 19th century as the focus shifts a little more to industrialization.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and another thing you point out in the book, quite correctly, is that in the 17th and 18th century, this sort of policy that is giving people emoluments of various sorts to go to places that you want to settle is not at all unusual. I mean, I'm thinking of, for example, Cromwell in Ireland. I mean, he basically told the Scots if they went there, he'd give them the whole place. And, uh, and, and I'm sure it occurred in a lot of places in Central Europe. But that's how all those Germans got there. Uh, and, uh, and the Poles were doing it. You know, these large Jewish populations end up there as well. So it, 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 was, it was a known thing that you needed to settle this territory in order, order to hold it. So uh, many European um, monarchies had policies like this. I mean, you know, in a way, this is how the New World was settled. That's right.
1: And and I think you know a thing or two about Kansas. Yeah, right. That's right. At one point, uh, a big part of the population of Kansas was Germans from southern Ukraine, the same people who were attracted to um, – Uh, to South Ukraine with grants of land were uh, then attracted by steamship companies and railway companies to uh, the American West uh, with uh, the promise of free land.
0: Right, yeah. So this was, a pretty much, this was pretty much common coin in terms of economic and political development, what the, the Russians were, were trying to do. Uh, they faced a certain amount of resistance from the population, again, in the church because the church, uh, you know, one of the things I think we have to say this is sort of the elephant in the corner is that um, – For Russians, I think, and I'll ask you to respond to this, the notion of citizenship prior to the 20th century wasn't so important as what we might call ethnic identity. And by this, we mean ethnic religious identity. So you needed to speak Russian and you needed to be orthodox. Uh, How did this, how did Russians react to the coming of all of these Germans and Jews and Poles and all these other folks that were coming in to settle the Southern frontier Ukrainians.
1: Well, the, um, there wasn't, it's, it's a complicated story. And, and um, I would say initially that, uh, the policy certainly that Catherine pursued was to, to leave them alone. I mean, uh, the the idea was that everyone had to have a religion, but that mm-hmm. if they were, for example, uh, Muslim, uh, then it was expected that they would be under the authority of the Muslim uh, the M- Muslim authorities in that region, mm-hmm. and likewise for the the Germans, um, uh, the, the Baltic Germans uh, were left pretty much to their own devices and. Uh, the, uh, the Lutheran Church in Estonia ran, um, ran affairs and that was just fine and for, the, for the imperial regime. Uh, but things do begin to change in the middle of the 19th century and they change in somewhat counterintuitive ways. Uh, and ironically enough, the very principle of citizenship as equal rights and obligations under the law is one of the reasons why things get tougher for, for example, the German colonists on the steppe. Uh, because, remember, they, they were attracted by the exemption from uh, military service, first and foremost. Um, and suddenly you have uh, the reformist uh, 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 administration of Tsar uh, Alexander II come in uh, with his henchman, Dmitry Milyutin, who introduces him <laughs> him. I've
0: never heard Milyutin called a henchman, but go ahead.
1: We'll call him a henchman today. <laughs> okay. Uh, he comes, a, uh, this concept of military form, which is grounded in the principle of universal citizenship, right. that every single person in the realm should in principle uh, serve in the military uh, and this is something that gets these German colonists very upset and it leads many of them to decide to leave um, the empire and it's it 's right around those years when the introduction of this uh, when the elimination of the exemption uh, originally given to these these colonists. That is the year in which uh, mass emigration of these uh, groups begins. Mm -hmm. So it's all kind of interrelated in interesting ways.
0: How did they, you know, I've always wondered about this, you know, because I have this sort of, I don't know 19th century Russian history very well, but uh, when one of these German colonies said, yes, we'd like to immigrate to Kansas, how did they do it? I mean, did the authorities just say, okay, we'll put you on a boat?
1: Uh, Well, it was a big business, actually. Um, The the steamship companies started appearing on the Black Sea really quite early, and um, they uh, got money from uh, actually the the people in charge of settling uh, in the West would actually pay for settlers to settle the land Mm -hmm. and for cheap labor. And uh, they would actually pay the uh, steamship companies to go over and do it.
0: Why did the Russians let but, them go, though? I, that's my question. These why, why? German
1: colonists also had money to pay yeah. for the trip, uh, and so they they, uh, they could pay for their own tickets. And steamship te- the steamship business was, was was a big one.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, I just it's an interesting moment to me because you do see a mass migration, but I don't. It's unusual that the Russians would let them go. I don't know why they did it.
1: You know, that's an excellent point, and um, it's uh, uh, (laughs) – in fact, the Russians did not – the Russian regime was not very keen to see these groups go, Um, and in fact, they put many barriers to the operations of these steamship companies. In fact, it was illegal uh, to try to sell steamship tickets or provide information about – Free land in Kansas. It was it was actually illegal to do that. Emigration um, agents were banned uh, from the Russian Empire, and they were often rounded up and arrested, and fined. Uh, so the regime. You're right, and that the the power of this attract and hold policy was really quite remarkable, and it it lasted all the way until uh, the end of the regime. Uh, uh, technically, emigration was never really fully legalized. And um, even in 1910, as as hundreds of thousands of people were emigrating from the Russian Empire, even then I found in the uh, police archives um, uh, campaigns of uh, policemen around the empire. They're they uh, ordered to go out and, and uh, find emigration agents and and uh, denounce them, round them up, uh, give them fines, uh, stop their operations. And- yeah.
0: Well, I mean, you make a very good general point, and that is if you have a system of particular privileges under subjecthood, if you try to transition to a system of uh, universal rights and obligations, uh, some people are going to benefit, that is the ones at the low rungs, but the ones at the top rungs, that is like these settlers who are given exemptions, are going to suffer. That's right. And that's a huge problem. I mean, I don't know how you write that. I'm thinking one one interesting thing is the uh, and one I know a little bit about, thanks to our friend uh, Vitold is the Zapendikrai, That is this this area where there were a lot of Catholic Poles, and and they they I don't know if you know a lot about this, but they, the the Russians really in the in the later mid to late nineteenth century scratched their heads about this place. They didn't know what to do uh, because they were Catholics and that wasn't good. Um, but on the other hand, they were productive members of the empire. That was good. Can you talk any, about, about these people? Also Finns as well. Finns, you know, what what do you do with Finns? Mm-hmm.
1: Well, you know, the the interesting thing that I learned while writing and researching this book is uh, probably uh, not that surprising to, to scholars who know what they're doing um, uh, in studying empires. That empires are enormously complicated. Um, and <laughs> the Russian Empire was a very complicated place legally. And uh, if you just look at the diversity of different regions, how they were acquired by the empire – uh how they were incorporated into the empire you come up with all kinds of complexities and uh, none more so probably than the uh the Polish Lithuanian area yeah. that was annexed in the uh the partitions of Poland in the at the end of the 18th century um, the uh Jewish Pale of Settlement emerged out of a series of decisions uh not to legally incorporate the Jewish population of this region into the uh all imperial population Um, Many of the restrictions on residence that emerged through the 19th century uh, were responses to perceived disloyalties of the Polish, not just perceived, I mean proven disloyalties of of the uh, Polish elites. Uh, um, There were uh, settlement uh, drives to try to bring uh, ethnic Russian settlers, uh, uh, especially nobles, into the Polish regions to try to subdue and take over. This region, there were limitations on immigration from other Polish regions in Austria Hungary and, and Germany, and uh, limitations on the ability of these Poles to uh, purchase land if they had foreign citizenship. Um, it, it was enormously complicated, and, and uh, one of the great anomalies is Finland. Finland had its own subjecthood, yeah. its own citizenship. There was yeah. a citizenship. And it was actually uh, the local Finnish authorities were allowed to uh, uh, to ban Russian, uh, imperial Russian settlement yeah. in Finland yeah. in, in certain cases. Something I had never expected or known uh, actually until I really got into the details on uh, of, of the, the the registration of, of the uh, of the laws and also into the details of <laughs> Russians complaining about this. Yeah. Uh, this was a big issue for Russian nationalists. Uh,
0: I think a good way to explain this to Americans, <laughs> it just occurred to me, would be to think about the Indian nations in the United States. They, they, they are under federal, They are—they are, they are nominally independent in some way. They are under federal authority, uh, except for in certain exemptions, and so state police can't go into reservations. They have all kinds of rights and privileges that ordinary folk in the United States don't have, like the ability to open casinos. Uh, they're all over the place. But then, if you want to understand Russia, imagine that times a thousand, and you know, large sections of the country, say California, has privileges and rights, or I don't know, Maine, <laughs> is is different legally than Massachusetts, um, and that's really kind of what you find. It's it's a sort of a yeah, you know, it's a it's a sort of a hodgepodge of 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 different kind of organically developed regulations and customs and and other things, and occasionally you have one of these. Bureaucratic one of these initiatives from the top, like let's Russianize the polls, which of course right. can't ever work. Um, but you know, there's the attempt made to do it, and you know, it ends it ends very badly. So um, That's true.
1: And I mean, another parallel might be the uh, the sort of uh, the French say say Quebec within North America, yeah, or, right. or or New Orleans, where you actually have a, a long and a deeply developed uh, set of historical. Uh, Traditions going way back, including citizenship traditions, uh, code Napoleon, and all kinds of you know uh, legal uh, traditions that are living traditions that are uh, that uh, you know they're they're complicated. How do you incorporate a region like that um, into a very different type of set of legal traditions and administrative Mm -hmm. traditions?
0: That's why I said the the most easiest thing to do is what they'd always been doing is that they go conquer an area or people come into the empire and they say, well, you're under the Tsar's protection and you get to maintain your own peculiar rights and privileges, and there we're done with it. There's no there's no debate about it. But once you try to universalize, which is what they were trying to do after they had kind of nominally become westernized and thought that universal citizenship was the best idea, they basically created a huge problem for themselves. Because this is not something that can be homogenized very easily. Um, you know, any more than... You know I'm thinking of like you know Kansas and Missouri. I mean that was a hard thing to, that was a hard thing to universalize too in the mid nineteenth century. Missouri was a slave state, and Kansas was not and uh this uh when the federal government tried to homogenize it was a huge problem
1: and, that's right and, and so all kinds of challenges and then uh, when uh the next big story in the book is uh when the regime decides to uh industrialize rapidly yeah. um and when it does it uh has to decide, you know, how how to do it. And one of the fundamental decisions taken in the time of the Great Reforms was uh, the decision to reform immigration uh, and naturalization laws uh, to favor uh, foreign settlement and investment in mm-hmm. Russia. And uh, I was really struck that this was discussed at the highest levels at the very earliest stages of the discussions behind the Great Reforms uh-huh. uh, before the emancipation of the serfs. Already in the 1850s, um, the the, uh, Committee of Ministers was meeting regularly to talk about how are we going to attract foreign capital to industrialize. Uh, Of course, coming out of the Crimean War, this was the imperative. The regime needed to modernize and industrialize. That was the driving force, the reason why emancipation of the serfs and all of the great reforms were uh, undertaken. Uh, But it was really striking to me how explicitly they talked about strategies to try to attract foreign capital. Uh, and foreign uh, skilled uh, uh, workers technicians investors, the like um, and uh, uh, it was, i was I never did write the article but there, there's uh, a, a part of my chapter uh, is called the Forgotten great reform
0: mm-hmm, yeah.
1: and it it really was it 's a great one of the great reforms that I think deserves its place among the list of four or five uh, of the most important of the great reforms it 's the reform of uh, immigration policy. And it really um, makes uh, it a great deal for a foreigner to come uh, to Russia uh, because uh, prior to the 1850s, uh, in part under uh, uh, the really conservative reg- uh, regime of Nicholas I, he was, he was pretty strict about uh, uh, keeping control of foreigners and foreign dangerous foreign ideas coming into Russia – uh, but going back, uh, in Russian history, deeper than that, there had been a series of limitations on the, uh, rights of foreigners in Russia, including a famous double tax that, that they had to pay. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, that was all eliminated in one fell swoop in, uh, 1860 and then in 1864 in this, in this great reform, which really made foreigners, uh, equal, uh, to Russians under civil law and in, uh, Basically, in commercial courts, uh, they had full, fully equal status. But there's more than that because foreigners, of course, don't have to serve in the Russian military. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when the Great Reform introduces universal uh, military service, um, foreigners become a really, a really a privileged state in Russia. They, they have all of the benefits of being a foreigner and all the benefits of being a Russian citizen at the same time. Um, so, one of the curious things in Russian citizenship history is, is after this great reform is introduced, is indeed uh, many foreigners do come in, uh, get involved in economics and in developing the industrial sector and trade and industry, etc. Uh, but they stop naturalizing because there is no incentive to naturalize. Right. Any. It's much better deal to be a foreigner. You are exempt from lots of uh, onerous uh, obligations. Plus, you have diplomatic uh, protection in case something goes wrong. Um, and uh, so uh, many of the investors of the 1870s in the second, third and third generations already in, in 1910, 1914 uh, still haven't naturalized. Um, and uh, that's, that creates an interesting dynamic in Russia because um, uh, Russian nationalists, uh, Russian uh, industrial groups uh, who have a nas- nationalist tinge to them, they notice this and it becomes a big issue for them. And they, uh, they become uh, quite strong opponents of this privileged position of uh, foreigners in, in Russia and, um, and develop some of the, some of the more interesting, uh, more prog- programmatic, you might say more ideologically coherent ideas of Russian nationalism that there are out there to find in the late 19th century. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so there, there is a prehistory to the kind of things that happened in World War I. Of uh, opposition to the uh, attract and hold policies of the uh, of the regime as uh, as it develops, and uh, to this open policy of um, uh, 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 of uh, giving privileges basically to to foreigners within Russia.
0: Mm-hmm. And, it, and I mean, I think one of the things you point out in the book too is it worked. A lot of foreigners came, and a huge amount of direct foreign investment occurred, and it spurred Russian economic development. So in that way the policy was quite successful, at least economically.
1: Absolutely. It was extremely successful and um, not all that extraordinary. I mean, one of the things about um, industrialization history, if you look from country to country, it's, it's really quite remarkable what a huge role foreign investment and uh, the movement of capital and people across borders uh, has played in every major industrialization in France and the United States. I mean, uh, direct investment from, from Britain was huge in the United mm-hmm. States um, in the 19th century mm-hmm. um, and from other places as well. Um, so it's not really that extraordinary um, in Russian history, but I think we see it as extraordinary because of what happened in, 19, in World War I and in the Revolution mm-hmm. when suddenly you have a um, massive um, turn against this foreign role. Uh, it starts in 1914, and this is one of the central points of my first book, Um, It starts in 1914 when Russia uh, ends up fighting against uh, uh, Germany, the great economic powerhouse of Europe at the time, uh, and uh, the most prominent foreign investor in Russia. Uh, Direct foreign investment mostly came from Germany, and uh, there were lots of uh, German citizens in Russia uh, running multinational corporations or just simply direct investment operations uh, in Russia. And suddenly, in 1914, all of these people come under suspicion. The government uh, introduces measures to to liquidate their properties and transfer them to to Russians uh, or to to citizens, uh, you might say more broadly. Um, and it's very disruptive, um, and it creates a, a set of precedents too for nationalizing properties that I think is is somewhat significant um, in the lead up to what happens in 1917 and 18. Uh, and then, of course, uh, everything falls apart in 1917 with the February Revolution, and the October Revolution, and the Bolsheviks come to power, dedicated to liquidating all property. This is a basic Marxist tenet, but it's also a wartime tenet because that's what uh, the regime has already been uh, engaged in on a large scale uh, in, in in relation to foreign um, uh, uh, the foreign foreign firms present on, on Russian soil. Um, and uh, so you have the nationalization order uh, to nationalize all uh, foreign businesses. Uh, now, that has a kind of curious little history as well. You would think that uh, nationalization of foreign businesses would be the first thing the Bolsheviks would do. Actually, it wasn't. Uh, nationalization of domestic industry got underway in a kind of spontaneous um, uh, fashion right, right from the moment of the seizure of power of, by the Bolsheviks. But the actual uh, decree to nationalize all business comes in June of 1918, six months later, mm-hmm. um, and uh, uh, it uh, includes the nationalization of all uh, foreign business and the renunciation of all foreign loans. Mm-hmm. This is really the point of no return for the Bolshevik Revolution in some sense because um, uh, half of all gross domestic capital formation in the three decades of Russian industrialization uh, prior to 1914 came from abroad. Um, uh, By renouncing all of that uh, and basically cutting off the possibility of a foreign source for Russian industrialization, uh, Russia was basically uh, giving up on the the one alternative it had to forced industrialization based on domestic resources.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So in some sense, Stalin's later decision to launch forced industrialization via collectivization was to some degree prefigured by that fundamental decision of 1918. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, the interesting thing is that uh, all of this total war in World War I uh, and then the the civil war with all of its uh, traumas and industrialization and everything uh, takes a huge, huge uh, couple of steps away from the citizenship policies of the previous 50 years. Um, and you might even argue longer than that, the uh, the entire attract and hold policy uh, that had, had uh, predated even the great reforms. Um, and uh, Russia really begins to move in a fundamentally different direction, the direction of uh, autarky, of mm-hmm. cutting itself off from the outside world. Mm-hmm. Um, and I kind of uh, – I think a lot of people might say, well, you know, the 1920s are an interesting period because – I
0: was going to say that.
1: Yeah, so uh, you know, the workers of the world unite. Come to come to Russia. It's a, a period of openness to to the world, right? Um, well, when you look at the details, not so much. <laughs> um, I have uh, I found a really great picture that, unfortunately, we didn't get a, a, a good enough dots per inch to put on the front cover, but uh, it's on the back cover. It's a it's a border post in Estonia, and it says, "Workers of the world, welcome." Uh, on a big, uh, yeah. a big, huge, colorful uh, uh, sort of gate. Uh, and right. <laughs> in front of it is the most forbidding yeah. set of barriers, saying basically. <laughs> I'm looking at it right
0: now. It says, don't come in, basically. So no you're not welcome see. here.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And that was, I think, that, that encapsulates the policies of the 1920s. Where, uh, sure, the Bolsheviks said, workers of the world come to Russia. Uh, but every time a delegation or a group of workers applied to come, uh, the uh, the agency in charge of immigration uh, said, wait a minute. We still have unemployment here. Right. Uh, no, we can't bring these people in. And the NKVD had final say. The OGPU actually had final say over every immigration decision. And they kept saying, well – they might be workers, but we'd have to vet every single one of them and who knows what their backgrounds are. I think it's safer not to allow them to come. So the long and short of it is only a tiny percent of those who applied to come to the Soviet Union in the 1920s actually are allowed to come. And those who do come find that conditions are pretty uh, pretty dire, actually. I mean, it's uh, work conditions are tough in the 20s and they write back home and uh, say, you know, this might be the first workers' uh, paradise on earth, but it's no paradise. <laughs> right.
0: mm.
1: And uh, so they never really get much immigration in the 1920s, and then in the 1930s, Stalin uh, is desperate for foreign assistance for 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 skilled foreign workers to to come and and help out. People like John Scott, um, uh, the 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 University of Wisconsin grad uh, with an engineering degree, who who volunteered to come to the Soviet Union. Um, And they bring uh, a a fair number of them in. But again, the OGPU is so paranoid about any foreigners um, uh, in the Soviet Union that uh, they uh, allow only 3% of all applicants to come to the Soviet Union in the 1930s are allowed to come. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they play a big role in industrialization, but they cost the regime an enormous amount. I think John Scott's salary was something like 30 times higher than uh, the Russians, uh, that he worked with at Magnitogorsk, And, uh, that was pretty typical. It was something like that. Yeah. Uh, that was pretty typical. So it was too expensive for the regime to bring in large numbers of foreigners. And S- Stalin also didn't, you know, he, he really, uh, suspected foreigners and he really shut the door. He made it very difficult for these, these foreigners to naturalize. He made it very difficult for them to, uh, come to the country. And uh, my book really concludes with uh, Stalin slamming the door shut and stopping uh, the kind of interaction with the outside world that um, was so important in uh, in citizenship history for decades and decades prior to uh, 1914. Uh, He really shuts it down. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, I mean, this business about nationalizing all enterprises, including foreign enterprises, was truly catastrophic because there was someplace else for that capital to go. I mean, it wasn't as if people in the era had a lack of investment opportunities. I mean, today, it's a little bit different because, you know, in Japan, money costs nothing. You can just go borrow money. I was just reading the interest rate is zero. Uh, you know, then um, there were lots of investment opportunities. The world economy was growing very quickly, and people just turned their back on Russia. It wasn't hard, and uh, they didn't really feel much about it. It would it'd be interesting to actually trace where that, mon- that investment money went. I imagine a lot of it went to the United States. But I, I don't know. Let's let's talk a little bit about what happens in 19 – I don't know if it's 1917 I guess and the Bolsheviks say, OK, now we have universal citizenship. Everybody is a Soviet citizen. How does that change things? Well,
1: they – does they, it?
0: They
1: do. They very much do and um, there are a couple of interesting uh, incidents in, um, in the evolution of their policy because – um, in principle, they declare that, uh, you know, on a class basis, that uh, the most important thing now is your class rather than your, uh, the, the country that you belong to. Workers of the world unites, you know, the, the working class has no fatherland, you know, all these kind of things. Um, and uh, so like I already mentioned, there was an open invitation in theory to workers of the world to come to the Soviet Union, but in practice, it proved to be quite difficult. Now, the converse was pursued quite actively by uh, the Soviet regime, and that is the notion that um, uh, non-working class people uh, are not full citizens of the new state. And in fact, um, uh, the early Soviet Union develops a uh, category called the licensi, mm-hmm. uh, that is those who are deprived of voting rights, um, and they were entire, entire classes were put into this category of uh, licensi. Uh, So uh, former aristocrats, clergy, um, uh, industrialists um, were uh, allowed to stay in the Soviet Union, but they were given this second-tier citizenship status, which deprived them of certain key rights. And voting rights uh, are just kind of a proxy for many other rights that came with it, more important rights really for survival in the 1920s, which included access to ration cards, Um, uh, the ability to get reasonably good jobs um, access to educational institutions a lot of these were sort of derived from uh, your status as having full um, voting rights Um, so there's the use of uh, citizenship in in this uh, unique way to uh, pursue basically class um, uh, well you might to use Terry Martin's terms you might call it class affirmative and disaffirmative action I would
0: just call it class war or class war. I'm not sorry. Another way yeah, <laughs> call it. Yeah, I just call class war because they were they were really trying to put these people down or get them out. They
1: were, and in fact, they did a chase out in a famous um, in a famous incident. Uh, they uh, the regime rounded up um, uh, a boatload full of intellectuals and expelled them from the country and removed their citizenship. But uh, for the story of citizenship, even more unprecedented in um, in the history of citizenship globally. Uh, was a decree in 1920, um, oh, shoot, I'm blanking, 21, 22, <laughs> can't remember the exact year. Um, anyway, there was a decree issued to uh, uh, give a deadline for all Russian subjects, former Russian subjects of the Russian Empire, sp- spread throughout the world. Um, uh, many left during the Civil War uh, seeking refuge in uh, Europe. Uh, or in China uh, outside the borders uh, to just run away from the, the terrors of the civil war. Um, uh, The regime issued a deadline for them to come back to the Soviet union uh, and, or to naturalize as Soviet citizens abroad. Uh, And if they didn't do it by that deadline, then they were all declared to be removed from Soviet citizenship, to Mm -hmm. lose all rights of Soviet citizenship. Um, And, uh, I'm not aware of another country that had ever done something like this. And what it led to was the denaturalization by decree of well over a million uh, refugees throughout Europe. And it was a big problem for Europe because it meant that a million people now had no citizenship. And uh, the world was not uh, keen to issue uh, citizenship in the interwar years. Mm-hmm. Uh, France did not give out French citizenship that easily. Uh, nor did uh, all the other places where uh, uh, where Russian refugees ended up. And so uh, a polar explorer named Friedrich Nansen uh, uh, was at the League of Nations and developed uh, uh, a, a quasi-solution for this problem, uh, which became known as the Nansen Passport. It gave uh, stateless uh, holders of a Nansen Passport Basically, the right to travel, and uh, most mm-hmm. countries recognized the Nansen passport as a valid travel document for people, mm-hmm. a form of identification. But they still remained technically stateless, uh, all of these individuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this was, again, a, what a, an aspect of what you might call class war, um, uh, of removing the citizenship of a whole category of individuals. And, of course, most of these individuals were not working class. Many of them were.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, the, when you talk about this stuff, I'm reminded of something that Stephen Kotkin says, and that is the Soviet Union uh, committed suicide by uh, fanaticism. That's not the word he uses by mm, – what is the word he uses? Uh, um, by – what is the word he uses? Ideological fidelity. Now, what's the word for that? You know, they they were – by being ideologues. They You know, they just – they stuck to these principles even though they were constantly – harming them. I mean, they, you know, it, it would have been much smarter, actually, to kind of have, you know, peace and reconciliation and, you know, get these valuable people back you right. know, and invite foreigners to come help build the revolution and bring them in. But, you know, at every moment, they were just more interested in settling scores and and, you know, ultimately sort of pushing people away and building whatever the heck they were building. I don't think they knew what they were building, but it's, it's just remarkable how um, impractical a lot of these measures were, particularly in the late 20s and early 30s.
1: That's that's absolutely right. And, and um, none more impractical, really, than the decision to launch industrialization cut off completely from the outside right. world. I mean, the costs of that decision were so enormous yeah. uh, throughout the 20th century. And uh, so Russia emerges in the 1930s with uh, probably becoming the model of, for a uh, hermetically sealed yes. uh, a hermetically sealed country that is a, a, attempting to modernize and industrialize uh, totally cut off from the rest of the world and without the kind of uh massive and intensive cross border exchange of ideas and goods and services and trade and 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 you know the economists would like to say the the, uh, the the flow of people allows comparative advantage to to work its wonders and yeah and lift everybody's boats on both sides of the border.
0: Right, right. Suicide by idealism, that's what I think right. he says, and, yeah.
1: And you know what? In the in the era prior to 1930, uh, throughout the world, uh, the, one of the primary functions of citizenship was precisely to allow massive cross-border flows of capital and people and and or uh, temporary workers, mm-hmm. uh, all of this, without totally losing control over who your citizens are. hmm uh, so, uh, one of the in one of the chapters, I, I deal with the emergence of a modern uh, guest worker system uh, that as something that Germany does to facilitate massive uh, cheap Russian labor flows into Germany, and then Russian administrators say, "Hey, that's a great system," and they take it all the way across the continent and and, and use it to to deal with uh, cheap Chinese and Korean labor flowing into the gold mines and and railway construction of the Far East. Mm-hmm. Um, so the whole world was kind of learning and and, and developing ways to to keep um, uh, there's you know keep control of their citizens and who was citizens uh, while also modernizing mm-hmm. and uh, you know this isn't a purely benevolent benevolent thing I mean it, it also was a means to to keep for example coolie labor cheap and sure. you know mm-hmm. by not naturalizing uh, it wasn't a purely uh, benevolent thing but it, it did facilitate huge amounts of cross border movement. And uh, one of the most striking uh, statistics that I found in, in my research was, um, uh, on the uh, eve of World War One, uh, there were uh, 10 million recorded uh, border crossings um, uh, in, in just one year in 1912, uh, and uh, by uh, 19 by 1930, the figure had gone down to I can't remember the exact number, but. Uh, just a tiny fraction, like one one percent of that level, or something, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it's, it's it's a sort of a stark illustration of the, uh, the the way in which Stalin really cut off a often very productive set of cross border exchanges that had um, been characteristic of you know mm-hmm. Russian um, uh, the Russian interface with the outside world, you might call it, mm-hmm. for really quite a long time. It was not just in the late imperial period and, I think as, as um, I don't know if you agree with the, what I wrote about the really early periods of Russian history, but I, I think it's actually has, has deep roots, this kind of interaction with the outside world, deeper roots than most people would, would assume. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I, you know, I don't generally like hypotheticals, so they're, they're completely necessary for historical explanation, though. Would you say, this was debated for a long time, uh, would you say that Russia was you know, given its policy toward attracting foreigners and attracting direct foreign investment in the late 19th and early 20th century. Would it, would it have been on a glide path to become something a little bit more, I, I don't know exactly how to characterize it, Western or prosperous, had the Bolsheviks not taken power? Is that, is that the moment, or is it World War One? Because from, I, I guess I get the sense from you that World War I was a little bit of a hitch, and that is to say that the imperial government, they, they felt a little bit uh, awkward about having all these Germans. They felt a certain amount of public pressure to keep them under control, but had they maintained power past 1917, that maybe they would have returned to these policies. But the Bolsheviks just cut that option off.
1: Well, I think one way to
0: answer that is to
1: look at what happened in 1991 once the Soviet Union, this experiment in autarky, ended. Um, I mean, a big part of 1991 was opening to the outside world and, and um, you know, re engaging with the outside world. and. You know, the debate goes on as to you know Putin has uh, has uh, um, gone back on some contracts with with foreign investors and the like but you know really that that debate is over I mean it's uh, Russia's engaged with the outside world now mm-hmm. um, and in a way that looks a lot more like uh, the uh, engagement of the late Imperial period uh, where there were opponents uh, the, the the Tsar's regime was not you know, 100%, uh, um, uh, you know, they, they took measures against uh, foreign companies too, um, and uh, they they restricted their activities to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. All of it is just, the, I think you can draw a much straighter line from 1914 to 1991 uh, than you can from any part of the Soviet Union. Yeah, I think that's right. Era. Yeah. So I think that maybe kind of answers your question about yeah. alternative paths because, I mean, I argue explicitly in my book that. You know, in citizenship policy, anyway. I'm not saying that, it, that this is true for everything in Russian history, but in citizenship policy, um, the Soviet Union, uh, the Soviet era, does appear to be a sort of diversion from the long sort of arc of history. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the long bend of Russian uh, citizenship policy has a, a jagged sort of diversionary, sort of uh, diversion from the path in uh-huh. the Soviet era, and it's kind of back on track again.
0: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I, w- I, would, I would agree with that. And, you know, and then we have this great natural experiment in terms of uh, Stalinism and uh, non-Stalinism on the Korean Peninsula. And right. you can just see it very starkly. If yeah. you, if you a- attract foreign investment, you become South Korea. If you don't, you become North Korea. And um, you know, we can, I think that uh, applies to uh, the Soviet Union as well. Let me ask one, one, one last question before we go to our traditional final question. And that's this. So let's say I'm in a software engineer God, I wish I were. Um, and I say, you know what I need to do? I need to go to Ru- I need to go to. I need to go to, um, uh, Simbirsk or someplace, and uh, I want to join a company there. And eventually, I want to become a Russian citizen. Can I do that? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and how, how does it work now? Well,
1: it's gotten harder than it was in the nineties. In the nineties. There was an open uh, invitation for people to to come to Russia and naturalize. Uh, Putin in 2002 changed the law and really uh, made it a lot more difficult uh, to do so. Um, but, uh, I think as, as Gerard Depardieu just showed, I mean, if, if, uh, someone high up, uh, wants you to be a citizen, it can happen really quickly. I yeah. think he was given his citizenship, uh, with a two week waiting period.
0: All right. Well, you can buy, it used to be able to, I don't know if you can anymore. You can buy Canadian citizenship for $200,000. I'm sure some Canadian is going to write me and say, that's wrong. That's all wrong. But I know you, you used to be able to buy Canadian citizens. You're like, he's giving us amount of money and you're in. <laughs> that's right.
1: And, and you know that uh, in, in the imperial period, the only um, the only way a, a foreign Jew could become a citizen was to open a factory and invest X, X amount of, of rubles. And so yeah, right. uh, there right. were... Money, money has its ways of of resolving. Sure,
0: I, I didn't say this was a bad policy. <laughs> I just said that's. I don't think so, it's a bad policy. I mean.
1: But it's it's true. It's true in modern citizenship, uh, things are very complicated. I think someone uh, uh, looked at all the ways one can become an American citizen and came up with like twelve hundred different paths yeah. of citizenship.
0: Right, right.
1: So, I mean, it's uh, and many of them involve <laughs> money.
0: <laughs> well, you know, you can serve in the armed forces. I mean, a lot of foreigners serve in our armed forces, and you know, get immediate citizenship upon. A successful discharge but it's a it's a pretty it's a it's a pretty good leg up to citizenship yeah i mean i, I think most americans don't realize this that there are thousands of foreigners serving in america's armed forces so uh so that's an, another way so what do you think of the uh i mean uh is russia going to remain open like this i mean am i you know me the software engineer who wants to work in in western siberia will i still be able to go in five years or
1: you know, I think I think it will. Uh, the question is whether you will want to go there yeah, right. than to China or to South Korea or to Singapore. I mean, yeah. th- there's a lot of options out there, and um, you know, Russia is is still facing the question as to how where it's going to be on these the the continuum as it exists today. Which you know, it's it's no longer a choice between Stalinism and fascism and. And failing capitalism, it's it's a very different set of choices right now. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, it's it's still a dilemma. And uh, one of the big challenges Russia faces going forward is uh, a, a looming shortage of labor, which is already mm-hmm. there. Um, and having a restrictive set of policies on citizenship and immigration uh, only hurts uh, and only exacerbates this problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, if uh, If Russia really wants to get a sizable uh, influx uh, of people to to work in factories and work in um, and in the economy uh, it will need to liberalize its immigration policies and its uh, probably its access to citizenship as well mm-hmm. Uh, but the um, the coalition behind Putin right now includes uh, a, gr- a group of nationalists who have made immigration one of their signature issues. Boy, oh boy! And the negative thing too is that the some of the major voices in the opposition, people like Alexei Navalny, have made immigration their uh, target as well. So the popular opposition uh, may actually be harder on <laughs> immigrants than That's the regime is. So. It's not, not looking good for the yeah. future and, uh, on, on citizenship uh, issues and my immigration issues. I,
0: uh, well, I don't plan to immigrate to Russia. I, I can tell you that. I've, I've done enough moving in my life. I think I'm done moving. <laughs> boy, oh, boy. So anyway, uh, thanks so much for talking uh, with us about the book. Let me ask our traditional final question, Eric, and that is what is your next project? What are you working on now other well, than your jump shot?
1: I am working on my jump shots, uh, trying to emulate the great Marshall Poe. Uh, uh,
0: <laughs> I have no jump shot anymore. so
1: <laughs> Please don't. <laughs> uh, no, I'm working on three projects, all related to World War One. Uh, one is a volume of papers as part of a massive project of twelve volumes of papers on World War One. Uh, the next is a uh, it's a trade book on just simply the history of Russia during the First World War. Oh. Uh, for Bloomsbury Publishers, uh-huh, yeah. and uh, the third project is uh, a book I'm calling Russia's Last Christmas, A Portrait of the Empire Before It Fell.
0: Oh, Well, it doesn't sound like you're going to have a lot of time to work on your jump shot to me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can squeeze it in among your many, many other things. So uh, today uh, we've been talking with Eric Lohr about his book Russian Citizenship, from Empire to Soviet Union. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope everybody out there has a great week. Thanks very much for being on the show, Eric. You're welcome. It was a pleasure. All right. Bye-bye.